fun lawyer show. We just started a superhuman law division, and I want you to be the face of it. Lawyer show. Imagine running a superhuman law division of a law firm. That's exactly what we're going to talk about here, and we're going to start off the series by reviewing the new She-Hulk Attorney at Law show on Disney+. So let's dive into episode five, Mean Green and Straight Poured into These Jeans. So I'm Greg Lambert, and alongside with my superhuman law division co-counsel, Joshua Lennon. Joshua, what did you think of episode five? Uh, Unfortunately, I think this was another miss when Ah. it comes to demonstrating some legal concepts and the practice of law. An enjoyable episode. I'm really loving the show overall, uh, but I do think they're struggling to find their footing when it comes to some of the legal aspects that are presented in this show. Interesting. I am am, uh, actually going to kind of give it a pass. In fact, uh, uh, you may have seen the tweet that that went out uh, earlier Mm -hmm. this week where, where someone was pointing out all the legal issues. And and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hang my hat on the fact that uh, this is Earth 616 and mm-hmm. the, the rules of civil procedure in Earth 616 are going to be slightly different. So I'm, I'm going to apply that uh, the rules of civil procedure in Earth 616 are going to be set up so that if it is on Disney Plus, everything has to be done within 30 minutes. If it's at the MCU at the theater, two and a half hours three hours uh, uh, you know so trials are going to be then we, super then we can get a proper trial yeah <laughs> so i'm going to be very forgiving uh but yeah there's there are absolutely a lot of a lot of holes in the uh, legal uh, system in the in she hulk yeah uh, and again a, a very enjoyable show but unfortunately they're they're airing on the side of I think kind of lighthearted media presentation Mm. rather than this is us exploring legal concepts in an almost cartoonish but relevant environment. Yeah. Yeah. So the legal issue this week uh, continues from uh, last week's show, which is uh, the She-Hulk by Titania, the trademark lawsuit. And we mm-hmm. actually get our very first product placement in She-Hulk, and that is the mentioning of the Pro Se podcast from Law360, uh, Law360 right. being a, a Lexus uh, product. And uh, what uh, I, I kind of feel famous uh, by association because uh, yeah. Amber McKinney, it has been someone who I have interviewed before for for another podcast, yeah. and I actually reached out to her because she is the co-host along with uh, Alex Lawson, who you actually hear mm-hmm. Alex's yeah, voice yeah. on on the show. And uh, Amber said, uh, Joshua, that she would love to come on this show and do a recap at some point. So I, I'm let's, definitely let's taking her, her arm. <laughs> yeah, because I think one of the things we haven't explored is. What resources are they using in terms of creating the show mm-hmm. to really investigate the the legal issue or storyline of the week? Yeah. So I think that'd be a fun topic for us to dig into. Yeah. And and I can point out that in again in uh, Earth six one six that the uh, the Pro Se podcast has sponsorships on it which they do not have uh, in this yeah. Earth. Uh, so uh, mm-hmm. again a. A little bit, little bit of the multiverse coming into effect. Creative uh, license. Exactly, exactly. But it, but yeah. it was fun, and I know Amber and, and Alex were, were super excited to have their podcast mentioned. Just like any kind of industry, lawyers have our own dedicated media kind of entities and brands. Law360 is one of them. Uh, American Legal Media or ALM is another one that's very popular. Yep. And we'll probably see, and we've mentioned in the past, Thompson Reuters Westlaw and LexisNexis popping up throughout this series as well. And so these are things that where lawyers tend to find a lot of their uh, industry-specific discussions going on and a great place for us to, again, see where 
the real world and uh, Marvel 616 collide. <laughs> Did, have we explained wh- why it's 616? Or I kind of don't, why we keep saying that number? I, I don't think we have. Do you want to take that one? Yeah. Well, I, I know what it's supposed to entail, but there may be more history behind it. So within the Marvel Universe, they often take a look at kind of alternate realities. It might be different timelines. It might be different universes. Um, but again, the fantastical nature of the stories allow them to explore. And one of the Disney media properties that has really tied into this is the cartoon What If, where we got to see twists on kind of earlier stories that we've seen. Uh, my favorite one being uh, the character Peggy Carter becoming Captain Britain. Yes. Uh, rather than the character Steve Rogers becoming Captain America and how that kind of shifted history. And so the storyline, kind of the main storyline that exists both in the comic books and in what we think are as the Marvel Cinematic Universe is uh, numbered 616 out of the potentially infinite number of universes out there. Um, the one that is kind of consistent, the status quo, is uh, Marvel 616. Yeah. But there have been just a ridiculous number of variations <laughs> offered by different authors and comic book series, some of which are really kind of entertaining, some of which are tragic. Yeah. Uh, and so here we see 616 is both entertaining and tragic when it comes to civil procedure. Yeah. And and I can tell you as someone who collected the What If comic books in, in the 70s and 80s, the one consistent theme was whatever story they were having, ultimately at the end, something absolutely tragic would always happen. So the, the universe would implode or a major character would die. Um, so it was kind of a fun way for the comics to look at that multiverse idea and come up with these great kind of one-off stories that you know didn't affect anything else in the uh, Marvel Universe, but gave the authors and, and artists a kind of a fun way to produce something uh, without yeah. having any kind of uh, fallout Lasting at the end. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, well, the the issue this week, of course, is uh, the all of a sudden the She Hulk name seems to have been trademarked by our friend Titania, who we met in the the first episode. And uh, it what's what's kind of funny is you hear a lot of mansplaining going on about trademark law and both the yeah. uh, process server and Jen's uh, cousin Ched seem to want to explain to her, see, Jen, you have to understand that, you know, whoever's the first to trademark is the owner of that of that name. So is Joshua, is that is that true? Kind of, right? The, there is a presumption that the first to file is the owner. Um, but in normal trademark law, there's also an objection period. And so there are law firms and legal services that monitor these filings, both electronically and, man- and manually, such that uh, you can object during this legally designated period. Now, what we didn't see... In this episode, for example, was anybody actually looking out for Jen Walters and the She-Hulk brand? Uh, One of the things, presumably, that uh, Tony Stark did when he funded the Avengers is he brought his legal team with him. And so uh, Ant-Man and uh, Black Widow and all these people had their own army of IP lawyers watching out for their brands. Ironically, She-Hulk at a prestigious law firm did not have a lawyer looking out for her brand. And so it's uh, we're left wondering, given how kind of recent Jen's transformation into She-Hulk is, uh, has this objection period expired or can she take advantage of it? 
Yeah, and and we have a scene where we can show that there is there's clear confusion on this brand because her cousin yeah. Ched has bought a ton of She-Hulk by Titania uh, uh, merchandise and with the plans mm-hmm. of, of having Jen sign this with her She-Hulk name because obviously this is her product. So she has to explain that Titania has somehow taken the She-Hulk name from her. So. Yeah, which again, I think is an absolutely brilliant arch-villain move <laughs> in an attorney superhero show. It, yes. That's just, yeah, I just love it. <laughs> so the, the next scene that we have is the pop-up store that Titania has where she has all of her products and people standing in line to come inside to buy this very expensive beauty products. And uh, Jen does something kind of weird. I guess I guess if, if she wasn't a lawyer, I could see her do, doing this. But the fact that she's mm-hmm. a lawyer and she goes in and she just basically asks Titania in person to stop and take it all down, that Jen is the She-Hulk and that all related materials and products should be done away with. And Titania makes a claim that the name She-Hulk is mine. So, you know, yeah. if, would you, if some, if you had a, a, someone that was suing someone for trademark, would you go in and just uh, meet face to face in a pop-up store? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, one of the worst things a client can do is go off on their own and especially communicate with the other party. There are actually rules about lawyers communicating directly with opposing parties when they know they have representation. Yeah. So Jen, as a lawyer, should have known that she cannot go and talk to Titania. Instead, she should have been talking directly to Titania's lawyers. There has been uh, a barrier set up by the professional rules that prohibits that conversation from happening. Uh, there's actually probably a pretty serious malpractice complaint that could be lodged against Jen for taking this independent action. Yeah, not not the the wisest of, of decisions. So, but I yeah. think at, at this point, I don't think Jen has it on her mind that she is going to sue Titania, but rather she's just trying to be nice. I think she sees it. And again, this is where clients tend to get themselves into trouble by thinking, oh, mm-hmm. well, I, I, if I do this, I'll just make it go away. And very, very rarely does that happen. Yeah. But Jen, as a lawyer, should have known better. So yeah. I think that's that's kind of one of the black marks against this episode. Yeah, there's yeah. there's a lot of things that, and and I don't think yeah. it's just this episode. I think we're going to see that. I think we've seen it in other episodes mm-hmm. where you're going, you should know better than than to do that. If you if you're a lawyer and you've passed the bar and you've practiced, there's certain things you shouldn't do. So yeah, and importantly, she's been served right, so she knows there's representation. Yeah. We've got uh, an affidavit or an affiant saying that Jen has received the court documentation, the notice of claim. Uh, that will have been signed by the lawyers representing Titania. There is no question of fact on whether or not Jen knew this situation. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so we end up back at GLK and H, and there's a, there's a couple of things going on. First of all, uh, Jen, again, kind of talks about this dual personhood that She-Hulk seems to be their own person and Jennifer Walters Mm -hmm. is is another person. And we kind of get this mixed message here. And she says that, you know, I'm just Jennifer Walters. She-Hulk is a thing that happened to me. And, you know, and she acts like this, you know, she doesn't care about the She-Hulk name, but you can clearly Mm -hmm. tell that she does. I, I think there's a, there's a stapler crushing, uh, incident there. So you can tell she, yeah. you know, this is at least bothering her. But we do finally, that we, we brought up the issue uh, over the past couple of episodes that we have yet to see Nikki, her paralegal, that we have, haven't seen her office yet. And we finally get to see her office this week. And Man, it is in the middle of a hallway. It is like the worst paralegal office I have ever seen. So, 
Anybody can just walk out. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's the thing. Is most of the time, you know, paralegals are working on things, especially when you're that close to the reception area. You want mm-hmm. a barrier in your office between any of your client-related materials, including the the work that a paralegal or secretary or an attorney or librarian mm-hmm. or anyone is is looking at or has access to. You want that completely separated, and that is. That's, it's just a bad, bad setup. She she does have a window, which is is uh, in most offices a window is a prime location. Yes, a location. Yeah, yeah. but partners uh, get the windows. Yeah. Everybody else works in the center of the building. Yeah. <laughs> I also noticed that uh, she had a little personality on her desk, which we have we have found lacking in the attorneys' offices. She's working off of a a window Surface Pro, but she mm-hmm. doesn't have any monitors. So she's literally working off the the, the laptop, which is a, a, a bad working environment. But on her desk, uh, she does have things like an elephant tape dispenser. She has a dumpster mm-hmm. fire toy, which I found kind of funny. Um, she's got filing yeah. cabinets behind her with her own printer, which mm-hmm. is a another rarity in, in this day and age. Most printers are networked and in, in somewhere in the center to reduce on overhead. And also for security, you don't want a lot of loose paper lying around your law firm. Absolutely, but she is positioned right outside of Jen's office, so they can uh-huh. see each other. That felt more like a secretarial type location than it did a paralegal location for me. Yeah, I agree with you. Paralegals produce just as much kind of work product as lawyers do. Yeah. And so that means they need periods of uninterrupted time where they can sit and focus on their outputs. We have yet to kind of see Nikki do that. She's done a lot of research on behalf of Jen. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, when she found Wong's contact information on LinkedIn. But we haven't seen her draft anything, for example. Right. It could be their unique relationship or it could be that... Uh, we are, again, are seeing kind of creative license yeah. when it comes to the workplace. Yeah. And we noticed that I haven't seen a secretary or legal assistant for Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've only seen Nikki, who's kind of playing that dual role. So, again, yeah. in, in uh, Earth 616 and I'm sure with uh, paying of actors to, to play certain roles, mm-hmm. it's better to pay someone once for two roles than it is to pay Two people, two salaries. Uh, so, which okay. which you may find also in in law firms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, the scene before we leave uh, Nikki's desk, uh, I did I did mm-hmm. find it kind of funny that uh, you know Pug comes by and asks for the favor to stand in line for the new Iron Man three sneakers, which are limited to one pair per customer. So he asks. Nikki to stand in line with him, but he mentions the uh, yeah. the drip broker, which is a made-up name. I tried to Google it to see if mm-hmm. that was meant something, but basically it's just someone who can purchase items and, and resell them, uh, usually at a, at a large markup on, on this type of uh, black or, mm-hmm. or, you know, semi-legal, semi illegal market uh, that a lot of these rare products or very popular products tends to create as a, as a secondary yeah. market. But then, you know, she asked, uh, Nikki asked for a favor in return, and that is to meet the person who creates clothing for, for superheroes. Uh, so they go to the Boba Cafe which turns yeah. out to be a front for the superhero clothing business. There is a QR code that when you walk in and I, I spotted it and clicked on it and it will take you to a free issue of the Dan slot run of She-Hulk issue number 10, which is Titania. Whoa. And what's funny is the cover of that is Titania literally taking over the cover of, of She-Hulk. So, I love you finding this stuff. Yeah, it was very, very cool. (laughs) Well, it seems like a throwaway plot point uh, about standing in line for sneakers, right? It's just a reason for them to talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, It actually does demonstrate, though, the value of controlling your intellectual property, right? Tony Stark's estate uh, presumably owns the rights to Iron Man. And so these limited edition sneakers, which are going for hundreds of dollars, uh, and are so sought after 
that a big law attorney is willing to waste billable hours standing in line for them, uh, it really just shows the value of controlling your brand and your IP, even in a superhero universe. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it seemed like a bit of a throwaway just to bring these together and advance the subplot that leads us to the Boba. But I actually found it to be instructive as to why Jen should have been paying attention to this issue from the beginning. Yeah, that is why intellectual property is part of the Constitution in, in the United States. Yeah. It is such a valued way to make the marketplace somewhat stable, to make sure that people are rewarded for their creativity. It's a huge part of the commercial environment in a free market society. It's one of the yeah. things that when you talk about rule of law, IP, intellectual property, is part of the rule of law. And you see that as kind of a benchmark for a lot of societies. Yes. Is your creation protected or can anyone steal that? And you see in, you know, in some areas in the world where IP law is not respected that – you have these counterfeits that come in, and that's mm -hmm. you know kind of kind of where we end up at the boba cafe is you see all of these counterfeits that are out there. The Avengers. <laughs> the Avengers. <laughs> the scene at the uh, courtroom drawing where she's holding up the Avengers cup finally makes sense. So they were having a, a lot of fun with the uh, bootleg stuff. Uh, definitely lots of IP issues going going on in this episode. And one of the kind of safe harbors for certain types of infringement can be parody. Like if you're doing something for a, a comedy reason or the reinterpretation of the, the intellectual property brand, I think Avengers is a real stretch, to be perfectly honest. Um, what, what about Avengers my... with an eye? <laughs> with an eye, yeah. You know, the cool thing about the scene at the Boba Cafe was, uh, again, and you, and you kind of catch this throughout this whole episode, is Jen in her She-Hulk form, and actually even in her human form, is dressing rather poorly. And so one of the things that, uh, you know, you have to think about, especially at work, especially at a high-end law firm, you know, that mm -hmm. uh, there is a certain expectation on how you present yourself at work. Um, and so uh, uh, we get to meet the clothes designer and, and tailor for the superheroes. Yeah. So there are a couple of things that are, I think, that are interesting around uh, the issue of Jen's attire. Um, from a superhero perspective, uh, it's definitely implying that superpowers are much more widespread than we've seen, like, in a lot of the other series. Yeah. Yeah. So the Avengers were kind of it. And they fought aliens, right? Um, but now we're starting to get the implication that there are enough superpowered individuals who have a need for specialized clothing that it not only allows this one tailor to run what looks like a really successful high-end business, uh, but also having to deal with competitors and being able to turn away clients mm -hmm. who he doesn't think are worthy of his time and attention. So that was the first thing I, I thought about with this. I'm like, whoa, okay, they're really setting up a much wider class of superpowered individuals. Yeah. yeah. The second thing is that, unfortunately, appearance is a really big issue in the legal industry, and it comes at a, a variety of different points. Uh, we know that judges, for example, can be very strict on dress codes for lawyers that appear before them, oftentimes mandating certain types of attire and doing so in a way that is not always equitable. Right. <laughs> uh, for example, male lawyers can get by in like a blazer and slacks, but um, judges have in the past ordered female attorneys to appear not just in a skirt, but also in pantyhose yeah. and have been found that because they have this kind of expansive authority in their courtroom that they get to make these rules. 
And so appearance in for lawyers in a courtroom can be a bit of a, a, a landmine field, field of landmines, field of mines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then we also see that it can impact your kind of political options within the law firm itself, especially in a, a white shoe firm, no pun intended, <laughs> like uh, GLK and H. How you appear and Jen's appearance is very much a part of her role at the law firm can influence how much support you get from the partners, um, your career advancement opportunities. And so it, it seems maybe a bit silly to devote a whole episode to tailoring, <laughs> uh, but brand is important in these big law environments. Yeah. And, and uh, on a side note for that, the dress for the office dress codes are very regional and law firm mm-hmm. specific. And so uh, if you are, and I, I know of law firms that have New York offices, Chicago offices, Miami offices, and Los Angeles offices, and the dress mm-hmm. codes can vary between each of those offices. And in fact, I've, I've heard stories of New York partners going down and interviewing attorneys in the Miami office and how they dress in Miami in a much hotter environment, much more casual, mm-hmm. that they had to kind of debrief the New York lawyers to say, they are not going to dress like you dress in the Northeast. This is, and you yeah. can't hold that against them. That's a, that is that just person. a regional preference and that is okay with us. So it's, it's really kind of funny to think about that. You can't just have a, a one size fits all when it comes to the dress code. So it's a no right. pun intended there. Yeah, either. Exactly. Yeah. I, I can give a personal example, actually. Sure. That's okay. Yeah. So I, I was invited to speak at a legal technology conference in Mexico City, Mexico. And I knew immediately that the the kind of the tech company attire that I often adopt when speaking at technology conferences in North, uh, in the United States and Canada would not fit in. Mm. Uh, because what we see for legal professionals there, um, especially for male legal professionals, is very much a conformity of black suits, white shirt, colorful ties. And it's not something that's like imposed. It's just what everybody expects. And so I knew when I flew into that conference that if I wanted to have credibility, I needed to dress the part. And that's exactly what I did. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. You think technology, you think more casual here in yeah. the United States and Canada. So uh, very interesting yeah, to, kind of to hear that. Yeah, jobs attire. Yeah. <laughs> have, have a hoodie, mm-hmm. a sweatshirt and a hoodie. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so the next scene, we're back at GLK&H. Mm-hmm. We have a meeting with Holden Holloway where he's having Jen explain, why am I seeing the name She-Hulk on billboards out there when that is the face of our superhuman law division that we have put mm-hmm. out there uh, for the world. And now he calls it uh, being put in the middle of a, of a petty lawsuit and that their clients mm-hmm. don't like it when law firms can't handle their own issues, basically telling her he, yeah. she's got to fight back. Yeah. She's got to clean up this mess. Uh, and I do think it, it, sets up the law firm itself to show as not being maybe necessarily supportive of Jen, mm-hmm. right? This should have been something that was a part of their overall approach. If we're going to have a superhuman law division and market based upon it, we should have set up the resources like controlling the brand, making sure that we're in a defensible position against you know any claims against us. And instead, it seems very lackadaisical. So either Jen didn't get the resources that she needed or they assumed that Jen would be on top of this and hasn't. Yeah. Uh, and I think we're still really shaking out how the law firm and Jennifer Walters fit together yeah. in this episode. And and one of the things that is consistently missing in this series is a solid marketing department. Yes. I just don't understand 
where their CMO, the chief marketing officer, is because I think uh, he or she needs to be fired for not, one, uh, prepping Jen for all of her TV interviews, two, Mm -hmm. making sure that they're protecting any of their brands that are out there and how they're marketing Jen and the She-Hulk name. So um, I have lots of friends that, that are marketing professionals, and I would love to get their take on what would they do if they were put in charge of the, of the marketing at GOKNH? So that'd be a fun episode as well. <laughs> we, could, we should one of those up. Yep. There is an issue that is brought up because uh, Holloway makes Mallory Book take the case for Jen to mm-hmm. protect her rights as, as She Hulk and thus the firm's rights to She Hulk or protections for She Hulk. There's a couple of things in it, and one of them is is clearly pointed out that a lawyer should not represent themselves because there's, you know, the a person who represents themselves has a full for a client rule. But yeah. I will also say this. Very rarely, if ever, do law firms take their own cases. So whenever a That's lawyer true. has any type of whether it's um, personal suit that mm-hmm. someone brings against them or it's a malpractice suit, 99 times, maybe 99.99 times out of a 100, that is given to another law firm to help represent them. And it's the same rules apply. Typically, law firms do not represent themselves uh, for the same reason that individuals do not represent themselves. And and so I think it's, you know, it's convenient for the TV show, but not something that you would see in our earth. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, the interest of JLK&H and Jennifer Walters actually diverge a bit, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, um, and so there can be a conflict of interest between the interest of the law firm and She-Hulk when it comes to the liability that's here. Uh, again, um, if She-Hulk is the face of the superhuman law division, apparently they're, they're throwing She-Hulk all over their website. They've got her on um, their, corp- their lawyer directory, mm-hmm. all of this. And so theoretically, uh, not only is Jennifer Walters potentially in trademark violation, but the law firm is as well and can be sued separately. So they should not be handling this in-house because there will be a point in time if this trademark stands that they may have to go their uh, separate legal strategies. Yeah. And that's why firms turn to outside counsel for something like that. Yeah. It, it's also, and I, I've mentioned this on previous episodes, is the thing that will get law firms in trouble is remembering exactly who the client is. And you figure that out in in conflicts. You figure that out in the scope of the matter that the law firm is taking on. And so you're spot on. Whose interest is actually, is Mallory Book going to protect? Is it going to be GLK&H's interest or is it going to be Jennifer Walters' interest? Because those, again, could be different and probably are different. So it's another reason why usually... Lawyers have their own individual counsel. Law firms have their own individual counsel. You know, again, uh, we we don't see that here. Apparently, the the rules in Earth Six One Six are slightly different. Either that, or GLKNH is is showing some very poor management of of this matter. So, uh, any anything else on either Mallory taking the the case? I'm I'm excited to learn more about Mallory. It looks like we're gonna set up. A bit of a rivalry here between Mallory and her experience in a big law environment and Jen's experience as a government lawyer Um, and what's kind of the the stereotypes they live up to as a part of their roles. So I, I think this is where we really start to see that develop. Yeah. Hopefully they stay friends. Yes. I think that that kind of storyline gets a little old. And so I'm, I'm hoping we don't we don't necessarily see that here. Mm-hmm. You want to get into the trial? Yeah, let's get into the trial. All right. Well, the very first thing I notice is apparently they were listening to us uh, complaining on our last uh, episode, but they finally st- started standing when addressing the bench. 
Thank goodness. Yes. And but I think mentioning what you mentioned last week, I think you're right. I think it was the CGI part because if you noticed, She-Hulk stayed mm-hmm. seated the entire time. There was no up and down this the time around. The only time she got up was when they said all rise. Yeah, and that and that was it. And she the came in, and then there was it. She stayed yeah, seated. No, down no the walking time. around the table. No, you know, no extra CGI. Yeah. So I think you are right there. Now we're going to get into, I think, some of the issues <laughs> that, that yeah. we had. What was this hearing? <laughs> so that's, I think, where we have kind of the biggest legal fail of the episode is, unfortunately, we don't really have a lot of context behind what's being litigated here such that we know, are they litigating properly? Um Theoretically, there's an injunction against Jen Walters to use the name She-Hulk. There is a countersuit mentioned by Book on suing Titania for infringing upon the professional identity of She-Hulk, which is not necessarily a legal concept. Uh, But a countersuit is not a bad strategy because then it forces new issues into the trial, uh, which at that point in time would have been focused solely on did Titania file the the She-Hulk trademark? Was it provisionally granted by the Patent and Trademark Office? And was the objection period like over? And could they have invalidated the trademark? And so this does give Book a little more wiggle room in terms of pulling in certain types of evidence and certain types of arguments. Uh, but again, we just don't know. And so much of a trial is actually kind of held on paper mm-hmm. that it is really tough to see what issues are particularly in question when we look at like a TV court drama. Yeah, there was just – it was a mess because I couldn't tell mess. if it was a if it was a pretrial hearing or – yeah. it just made no sense to me. It, it was fun. I liked when Titania tried to get the foot exfoliant admitted into evidence. <laughs> yeah, I think we're definitely continuing the uh, the series focus on just bad client behavior yeah. in courtrooms. <laughs> uh, again, though, Titania can punch through a wall if you're her if you're her counsel. Are you going to tell her to sit down? Yeah, yeah. And speaking so, speaking of her counsel, yeah. that guy was terrible. Yeah, what a what a horrible thing. I mean, first of all, he's taking pictures of her as court is going on. Yeah. He kind of just throws his hands up when she starts speaking to the bench and, and doesn't he's try not, to stop he's her. Not, yeah, he's not thinking of her best interests in terms of presenting right. Titania as somebody who is credible and empathetic yeah. for the court, Yeah, right? Yeah. Instead... Titania is coming off as shallow, and, and the lawyer is as well. Yeah. Uh, he does stand to address the bench, so good for him. Mm-hmm. He also tells yeah. uh, Titania that she doesn't need to stand while he's he's addressing the bench. So, yeah, I mean, there's I like a that. little bit of, uh, of client management there, but but not mm-hmm. a lot. So, And again, the judge kind of lays out, uh, you know, here's what I'm going to need to see. And that mm-hmm. is uh, that if Jennifer wants to lay claim to the She-Hulk name, she's going to have to show that she has used this name in a, a, a public setting more than once because they show where she does yeah. it once. The and, judge used a phrase pattern and practice. Yes. Which actually is uh, kind of part of the, the standard for certain types of behavior. So a, a one-off isn't enough sometimes to be dispositive in certain types of evidence. You need to show a pattern and practice of continual usage. Uh, now, that all depends, on again, on the type of issue in question. And what we don't really know is, does this actually a legitimate legal argument? Because we don't know what the basis is. <laughs> uh, so here's, here's my best guess. All right. My best guess is that we can compare... Jen's name to memes rather than identity we look at it as memes okay because Jen didn't come up with the name but it's now associated with her and there have been trademarks 
and contested trademarks around memes like Grumpy Cat, right. the Success Kid, which is like the little baby going like, yeah, with a, a <laughs> yes. fist. Yeah. Um, and even the singer Lizzo trying to trademark a phrase, 100% bitch, which is a line from one of her songs, but it's something that she actually derived from a meme that had been circulating on Twitter. So uh, I think the stronger legal lens to look at this is actually memes because Jen didn't come up with the name. It's something that is now associated with her from the outside looking in. Mm. And in those cases, trademarks were granted, like for Grumpy Cat, for example, uh, because the person filed for the trademark quickly, like the meme was still popular. Mm. Uh, and began defending against usage of that meme-like identity. So all these other people were putting Grumpy Cat on their products, and the owner of the cat upon whom the meme was derived uh, was like sending out cease and desist letters and trying to, to uh, get those types of items pulled. And the court found that activity as dispositive of a proper trademark application. And what we're not seeing in this case is that, yes, Jen, uh, people are associating the name She-Hulk with Jen, but that she hasn't gone out and kind of claimed that name and defended it, Mm -hmm. which is what the Grumpy Cat trademark ruling focused on. Interesting. So that's why the judge is saying, it's not enough that you tell me you want to keep the name. You have to show me that you're keeping the name. Yep. So Jen, through a uh, a chance meeting at the law firm with one of her bad dates, comes yep. up with the strategy of that she has actually presented herself in public and online and elsewhere as She-Hulk mul- right. multiple times through her very awful dating profile on Matcher and has decided to truly embarrass herself in order to get the win by parading her bad dates in front of the court to Mm -hmm. explain how she uh, used the name She-Hulk and went on dates as She-Hulk, presented herself as She-Hulk and not as Jennifer Walter. It was painful to to watch, which Mm -hmm. I think was the reason for it, but uh, the four or five bad dates show up for court testify and the mm-hmm. the judge rules in Jennifer Walters favor that she may uh, take ownership of the name She-Hulk. Yeah, and there are a couple legal issues here. Um, one, the fact that she was even able to bring witnesses into the hearing is something that uh, several people have commented mm-hmm. on social media that it just isn't supported, depending upon the arguments and procedures that you're taking here. Right. Uh, now, if we look at the motion to dismiss from Titania's lawyer, uh, what they're arguing is that we don't have really any questions of fact here, and so we should just rule based on the legal questions. What we could be seeing, and again, I'm really qualifying here because there's a lot of unknowns, yeah. and some lawyer is going to call me on it. Uh, But what we could be seeing is that Book is actually arguing that there is a question of fact and we have evidence that can be submitted in support of does a question of fact still need to be decided in this case and we should have a larger trial to answer that. Most of the time, though, it's written submissions. Um, So you don't have to have the bad dates on stand. You can just have four guys sign a piece of paper that said, yeah, I went on a date with She-Hulk in front of a notary, and that would be enough. But again, I think creative license, let's put the dates on the stand. Uh, and that's what we saw here, I think. Yeah. I do, however, feel the ruling is in error. Yeah. Uh, because again, if we go back to uh, what existing case law we have in this reality about memes and trademarks around memes, it's not personal usage, but commercial usage. That is actually determinative in some of those and some of those precedents. And so the fact that she was calling herself She-Hulk on a dating site, as opposed to her professional website with JLK and H, uh, I think means that she should have lost this. Yeah. And, and Titania should have retained She-Hulk 
And the better solution would have been having to license her own name back. <laughs> oh, so I yeah. maintain that, that should have been the outcome. Yep. I agree 100% on, on that. After the trial, of course, the, the judge rules that Titania has to do away with everything, that she has to pull everything from the market. Um, it, yep. It's, a, it's a, a pretty brutal victory uh, on Jen's part and, and Titania, as much as you may not like her, again, mm-hmm. probably not a very fair ruling for Titania. Yeah, pretty expansive. Yeah. Yeah. The follow-up scene at the they're back at the uh, legal ease bar with uh, Mallory mm-hmm. and Jen. There was one comment that Jen made, which uh, I wanted to bring up, and that was uh, she makes a comment that this is why Holloway pays me the medium bucks. So interesting yeah. that at a large, essentially white shoe law firm, which are notorious mm-hmm. for having large salaries for for their attorneys, uh, Jen, yeah. who has brought in Megan the Stallion as a as a client, is not making what what you would think is uh, very large amounts of money. Uh, compared to her her counterparts there, so I found that pretty interesting to to hear that, because again, for most profits uh, per partner, which is kind of a you know it's not what they make, but it's kind of a, a baseline measurement in the legal industry. I would think that a a firm like uh, GLK and H that their partners would be making you know high six, low seven figures. Yeah, I actually absolutely agree with you. And I, uh, I think it's further evidence that we see that GLK and H is not really hiring Jen for her legal acumen, yep. but is really just trying to attach a recognizable brand to their team and are turning to the rest of their lawyers to handle the quote unquote real lawyering mm-hmm. behind that. Yeah. And we'll have to see if that changes. And and again, which doesn't explain why didn't they go out and protect that brand prior to this lawsuit. So yeah, uh, I agree lo- lots yeah. of legal questions uh, still going on yeah. here. I did want to ask a, a legal question about the Taylor to the superhuman group mm-hmm. that's out there. That is there any legal implications for creating super powered suits because he talked about things that are are waterproof things that are fireproof Mm -hmm. things that have built-in weaponry you know i think that last one yeah is where you get into some interesting questions right Uh, so if you're building something that you know will be used in the commission of a crime for example then there may be some vicarious liability Mm -hmm. that can be applied and they should worry about I built in, I don't know, a taser into these gloves for <laughs> yeah. a client, right? And then surprise, the person went out and tased someone. Well, maybe you shouldn't have put in, you know, an actual working taser into gloves to, that's sold to an individual with a known history of violence. So it's, it's not necessarily illegal, but it can be seen as reckless, Mm-hmm. And it can be seen as the basis for including that tailor in a lawsuit because of the clothes that they've made and how somebody else used them. Yeah. So in law school, the question is, can somebody sue for that? And the answer is always yes. <laughs> the question is, can they win? Right. And I do think you can make the argument that there are going to be some people who get beat up and they're going to sue this tailor and they may win. Yeah. Yeah. I, I asked that because as Jen is walking in, you see someone walking out. The word on the street is that uh, that is Leapfrog, who will Ooh. show up apparently later in the episode. So he's not just making them for superheroes. He's also making them yeah. for villains and for vigilantes, uh, because we also see a, a, another lawyer costume out there as well. That seems as... to strongly imply uh, <laughs> another superpowered lawyer. Yeah. yeah, it looked like the Daredevil helmet, right? Yeah, the yellow suit. So everyone's oh. excited about the, about the original yellow oh. suit that uh, Daredevil once wore. Yeah, so at this point, um, what we may be seeing is conspiracy charges. Mm. Uh, and now we are moving into some criminal liability rather than civil liability. 
if he is actively aiding and abetting people in the commission of a crime, whether they're a vigilante or a bank robbing guy dressed like a frog, <laughs> uh, then uh, absolutely he could be considered criminally liable for aiding and abetting, depending upon the type of actions taken by the person he makes the costume for. Um, and given the cartoonish nature of some of the villains mm-hmm. in comic books where they have you know a special outfit and that's what turns them into the frog that can rob banks, <laughs> there absolutely could be the case oh. that why did you build this guy a second frog suit if you know he's going to go and rob banks? Yeah. Yeah, lots of issues there. So we do not have a a mid credit scene. However, Mm -hmm. there is one shot that I wanted to kind of bring up that was in the courtroom drawings. And that was uh, there's a shot with Pug in his shoe closet. And there are Mm -hmm. a ton of superhero and supervillain tennis shoes that are brands that are not what we think of in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. And so uh, we kind of get some real-life licensing issues here. So you see things like Deadpool, you see X-Men, you see Fantastic Four, a number of things that the MCU has recently licensed from other uh, corporations. So uh, Disney in its... its ongoing move to own every bit the of, universe. of trademark IP ever yeah. has acquired the rights to some of those yeah. storylines and the characters within them. Mm-hmm. And we do know from some more recent announcements about where the MCU is going, like in terms of movie titles and things that they've talked about. Yeah. Uh, and we know the Fantastic Four is one of them, for example. And so this is the first release of new Fantastic Four IP in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, even before the movie or the cast list or the story name has come out, some artist drew a Fantastic Four and an X-Men sneaker, and that was it. Now it's canon. Yep, yeah. Well, technically, I think uh, the Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness did have have that in there. But again, if this was something that was made three years ago, they couldn't have used those without going out and seeking that license so ip law is a real thing even the walt disney corporation has to follow the rules there but you're right i think they're 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 trying to own not just the the marvel cinematic universe but the universe so we'll see (laughs) my question for you though is when they inevitably take these drawings and make them into real sneakers are you going to wait in line for them? <laughs> I am. I am not a sneakerhead. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do know some people. Um, I do have a pair of Vans Avengers mm-hmm. shoes, oh. but they were a, they were a Christmas uh, present from one of my kids a couple of years ago. So uh, they have uh, cool. like they're they're green and blue and yellow and red uh, with with each of the you know Iron Man, Hulk, uh, uh, Captain America. Uh, Thor, they have, they have silver wings. So really cool. So I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I, you know, I would definitely wear them if one of my kids, mm-hmm. uh, you know, were to end up buying one of them. And so kids, if you're listening, I would, I would go ahead and so take that as a, as a Christmas present. Uh, nice. All right. Well, I think that wraps up this episode. I'm looking forward to seeing whether or not is Daredevil going to be in the next uh, mm-hmm. episode or not. Um, I've actually held off, even though it's it's out. I've I've really resisted not no watching spoilers. it. So yeah. I'm I'm really looking forward to to watching uh, the next episode. So uh, Joshua, any any parting thoughts before we sign off? Oh, just stay super, listeners. All right. Thanks, Joshua. I will I will see you next week. Lawyer Show. <laughs>